And Lord, as we now turn once again to your prophecies, help us to humbly approach your word. And as we approach that word to see that you alone are God and you alone do wonderful things. Amen. All right, we left off last time, Isaiah 45. And if you want some handout sheets, I do have some extra handouts now on the table for the, the next two chapters. But we're on 45, the 8 to 14. It should be a page 28, the top of page 28 for the handouts. But otherwise, you can also just open your Bible and we're on Isaiah 45, verse 8. If you're listening online, go ahead and check out our website too. There, not only do you find the, the study guide, but the suggested discussion answer points as well. Just to give us a little bit of context, last time we looked at uh, God talking about the, the heavens that rain down, showers, he's letting the righteousness rain down. God gives salvation. It has to be from him. But people, my question is working. So that's where we are right now and in the middle of chapter 45 where people would wonder, why is that God's plan? And so God kind of turns on the head of that argument and says, how can you question me? I'm the one who's designed everything and am your maker. Could a, a piece of pottery, a shard, question those who formed it? So we're kind of in that argument right now. At verse uh, 14, I'm sorry, I got the wrong, got the wrong numbers here, don't I? So it's 45 verse 14, your, your handout says 49 for like three questions. And then jumps back to chapter 45 again. So 45 verse 14. This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and those of tall Sabaeans, they will come over to you and they will be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. So the Lord promised that when Cyrus did this, remember that we just read, he would do it without cost. So Cyrus isn't going to demand any payment or tribute. Meanwhile, though, Israel is going to get some tribute when this happens. So the Lord promised when Cyrus caused Jerusalem to be rebuilt, the exiles to be set free, that nations would bow down before you. We're going to turn to Psalm 22, 22, to see how that points us to Christ. So they will bow down before you. Surely God is with you. There is no other. Don't often jump around, but want to, on occasion, compare some other prominent parts of Scripture with what we're looking at. Psalm 22, 22. I'll start us off. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So Psalm 22, up to this point, very messianic about the sufferings, the passion of the Christ, about them you know, piercing his hands and feet, dogs surrounding him. Um, all the, the, the appearances of the cross of this psalm are numerous, but it talks about this was to fulfill, and it points us to Psalm 22. So definitely a messianic psalm about the suffering of Messiah. So piercing my hands and my feet, casting garments my clothing, all that's found in this psalm. But then we get to the exaltation, and that's what we're comparing with Isaiah here. Verse uh, 25. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. 
Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. And now, similar to what we just read in Isaiah, verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And we could keep going, but I think that covers it. Yeah, all who go down to the dust will kneel before him. So even people that have died, talking about the resurrection, will one day bow before this king. So we just read in Isaiah, it says, they will bow down before you. Ultimately, see how that's fulfilled in Christ? Not just nations saying, oh, Cyrus has restored Israel. Israel's great. But ultimately, the Holy One of Israel would have all nations bowing down before him. So, yeah, when, when Egypt and all those nations would see what happened by Cyrus and his decree, they would have to acknowledge God's working. But everyone, the whole world, will come and have to acknowledge the Christ when they bow down before him. That closes this section. We didn't quite finish it last time, but now we get to review. So, scanning through verses 8 through 14, let's review it. This first question is really centering on verse 8. Why is it so vital to understand that righteousness and salvation cannot come from within us, but must rain down from above, from God? Because our righteousness is as filthy rags. Yeah, as, as we looked at last time, if we're going to look for righteousness, the scriptures make clear there, there's none, none of us who does good, not even one. And, yeah, as, as you point out, Helen, Isaiah is going to get to that point. Even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. So if people are looking for righteousness on earth and it's not from outside themselves, they're missing where righteousness really must come from. Other thoughts there? As, as humans, we have a tendency to think we can, we do things. Right. I will rain down righteousness on the world around me. I will be the source of righteousness. Yeah. And not so. It has to come from above. Certainly God makes us, right? He says, you are the light of the world. Uh, but that's only because we've received it from the light, Christ. And we have righteousness to share only because he has given us righteousness and now works new life in us. Yeah. Other, Judy, had a thought there too? Yeah. Um, Galatians 5, 16 and 17. I no longer live. I know what it is, but there's also the end of it is do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Right. If righteousness could be gained through the law, if we had righteousness in ourselves, why wouldn't God just say, all right, guys, pull yourselves up by your bootstrap. There's enough righteousness if the world collectively works at it, but then Christ died for nothing if righteousness could be found apart from Christ. Yeah, excellent. How about this? Describe how. So verse 8 talks about righteousness raining down from above. How God causes his righteousness to rain down from above. Just to recap, verse 8 says, You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. 
I, the Lord, have created it. So obviously that's picture language. We don't you know, literally drink rainwater and become righteous. But how does God cause his righteousness to rain down on us? All good things come from above. Comes from above. So that, that part of the picture is clear. Just as the rain sends the, or he sends rain from above, we wait for his righteousness from above. But how do we get it from above? Right, he sends his word. He's going to get to the, the picture of his word um, in some of the prophecies. I can't remember which one, Malachi perhaps, where he talks about his rains of his shower. I think it's Micah, right? The showers of his word. Yeah, so how does he rain his word down? Going to further describe that. Evie, you got something? Baptism. What's that? She said baptism. Oh, yeah, baptism. <laughs> yep. So God gives us his gifts in baptism. So baptism is described not as us giving righteousness to God. That would be a distortion. It's God giving us his righteousness. Um, Peter says in Pentecost, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he gives us his word, the gospel, the spirit in baptism. Yeah, so the, the sacraments, definitely. When God says, rain down my righteousness, there's Jesus going, make disciples by baptizing. So send you know, workers who share the gospel and who baptize. How else do we receive God's righteousness from above? Now we're kind of on the track if you talk about the gospel comes to us in the word and in baptism, which is one of the sacraments, and the Lord's Supper, yeah. So we got the, the two sacraments. Uh, we call them the means of grace. So that's the, the Lutheran way of summarizing. How do we get God's blessings? How do we get righteousness from above? He conveys it to us, almost like a channel. It's piped to us through the gospel and word and sacrament. Okay. So in summary, how does God cause his righteousness to reign from above? It's often been described in the Lutheran church as the means of grace, the gospel and word and sacrament. Could God send his righteousness in other ways? Yeah, but we don't have any promise he does. Um, connected with the gospel and word and sacrament, he connects forgiveness and the power of his promises. Um, God says here, Do you question me about my children, or give me orders about the work of my hands? Can we list some of the ways that unbelievers or false teachers question the Bible's messaging? Well, many people don't believe in the six-day creation. Okay. Yeah, his, the work of his hands as he formed this world, really by the power of his word in six days. A lot of unbelievers, false teachers, will, will take up and say, no, 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 we didn't need God for that. We have deep time, millions, billions of years. And even false teachers that portray themselves as Christian distort the scriptures and say, well, I know the Bible says a day, but what it really means is this. God says, why, why are you questioning my word? My word is clear. Do you question what I've told you? It's one prominent example for sure. There's a lot of people that take one verse out of context and build their whole, um, their whole religion, their whole self on what that one verse says. Yeah, they'll, they'll take one verse, um, one that pops in my mind is the millennial verse in Revelation 20, and they'll, they'll build a whole theology around it, or that one verse about the rapture, and they'll build a whole sequence of events that are outside of Judgment Day, 
Based on that one word, and, and why? Because they don't like the way God's plans are. What's behind that is they have a better plan. They have a better way that they think it should work out. So, you know, the, the idea of the millennium is like a Protestant version of purgatory. The rapture is like a way of escaping persecution without bearing a cross. You know, that, yeah. God, I don't like your ways that involve tribulation. I'm going to invent my own theology that avoids that. Eve, you had a thought? People don't believe in Satan and hell. Yeah. So a lot of people question the Bible's messaging. It says there are forces of evil and there's a spiritual battle. And they question that. Uh, why would God do that? that? A righteous God wouldn't give us a time of testing and trials. And No, he, he does, but he gives us all we need. Yeah. Okay. What are some ways that believers might begin to question God's working? So remember, God's talking to some of the obstinate people through Isaiah, but he's also talking to the remnant. How might believers question the working of God's hand? Got a thought too? Um, like God okay. Some believers might question, why did God put me here? Why did God you know, make me face these trials in my life? Why did God make me the way he made me? Yeah, believers struggle with those questions. Uh, but God says, don't question. I'm, I'm your maker. I've got a good plan. So anytime something bad comes our way, we wonder why did God let that happen? Right. A lot of believers uh, either temporarily waver in their faith or sometimes even lose their faith because they question the working of God as he sends a cross in our life. Um, like what Evie said about um, hell and Satan, I think even believers question Right. They say, what right does God have to punish and give everlasting punishment on his enemies and do that to the people that he made? Well, or they, or they think that a loving God wouldn't do that. Right. And so they, they fail to see the great extent of his love because they fail to acknowledge the extent of his justice and holiness. God has every right to punish sinners and to punish them forever as his enemies. We don't like that, but who are we to question God's working? Well, he warned him. He warned us all. Right, and when we question so it's that... It's not like the fruit, you know, from the very beginning, don't eat that fruit. Right, when we question or, that, we can't question his goodness. We can only question, how can that be? The, the terrible tragedy of those who reject God's grace. He gave us free choice. He gave Adam and Eve free choice, yeah. Well, we basically have it too, though. We know what's right and what's wrong. If we do wrong, that's our choice. Right. As, as believers, we can choose to do right, but unbelievers, they cannot submit to God's will. So some would question that too. They say, how is it fair for God to punish a sinner who can't be holy? You can't choose to be holy. Um, nobody can. And actually, we can't choose to serve and love God. Um, how's that fair, someone might charge God of? Well, how can we question the working of our maker and say fair? How's it fair that any of us are called into his kingdom? How's it fair that any of us are now chosen by God to serve him? That you're right, Cindy, the believers do have the choice. Believers can reject God. So who gets the blame? We get the blame. And if he punishes sinners who are lost in sin, they are still sinners and still deserving of his wrath. Okay, good. This has kind of become a segue, but I think this is an important place to turn to. If someone is questioning God, 
Turn to this. And notice how he works through something that doesn't make sense. An unbeliever like Cyrus would accomplish his purpose, but it's accomplishing God's good plan. So you can be reminded when you question God's working, sometimes his method or his ways and his word might not add up in our mind, but how dare we question him when he is the only true God and his plan is good and it's designed for the good of those who trust in him. Can we review some of the other times God revealed that he used unbelievers to accomplish his plans for his church? Well, Cyrus wasn't a believer. Right, so Cyrus invoked the name of God, as we'll see as we get to chapter 48, but he didn't acknowledge or trust in God as the only true God. So Cyrus is one prominent example when God used an unbeliever to accomplish his plan. What's another time when God says he used unbelievers to accomplish his plan? Sure. Uh, the way that Esther had to stand up in the court of the king and basically got to convince him of the truth and defend his people, God brought protection. Even though the king's decree wasn't in any interest of his own, it was just because the position that Esther had. I don't remember the guy's name, but the one that Jesus made go blind. Okay. I don't remember his name. Yeah. So... Did this man sin or did he not? And he didn't know who Jesus was, but no, he, he was, was after Jesus all the time. He that was the one who was following him all over and trying to Saul. Yeah. Oh, you're talking about Saul? Okay. Yeah, Saul was an unbeliever, and God turned him around to accomplish His purpose. There, He did convert him, right, to to accomplish mm -hmm. the purpose. But the life that led up to that point was all part of God's plan that people would see, well, look what happened. This, this man who once persecuted the church is now serving and proclaiming the gospel he once persecuted. So God took that, that unbelieving part of his life and made it for good. Yeah. Really, all of the times that Israel fell and then they were conquered by other nations, you know, right. one after the other, after the other. Those weren't believing nations, and yet God used them. God didn't send more righteous nations to punish unrighteous Israel. He sent equally unrighteous nations, but he used them. It's every time, you're right, that they suffered. Um, you can even think of uh, everything that centers around Christ, right? When he went to the cross. Is that Pontius Pilate. Yeah. Sending Jesus to the cross, even though he didn't believe Jesus had done anything wrong. The members of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, Pontius Pilate, all those involved, Judas, everyone that had rejected Christ as their Lord, God used that to accomplish his purpose. Um, as we said, you know, in the hands of wicked men, they did what God had determined, his foreknowledge had determined beforehand. Now, the disciples could have been like ancient Israel and said, Why are you doing this, God? Why are you using. Betrayal like Judas and ungodly Roman rulers to accomplish your plans. How can we question it? God's foretold it. Okay. Even though God used Cyrus to restore the people of Israel, he clearly didn't want the people of Israel to venerate Cyrus or praise Cyrus as their benefactor and hero. And this is kind of his preemptive notific notification here. Why is it important not to lose sight of this truth when we consider prominent political figures who make monumental decisions in favor of God's people. Yeah. Well, we answered it already with all these other questions. God uses the people 
and he wants he wants the attention or, or the praise for what he's done, even though he's used somebody else. Right. It's just like our government. You know, there's no authority that God has not established. So even though uh, you know we don't want to make our leaders the center of our worship or attention. Right, the degree of veneration that is given to political leaders should definitely be tempered with, God did it. He used them as his instrument. I think it was chapter 42 uh, that he said, uh, I will not give my glory to another. So he'll use another like Cyrus, but he doesn't want us to praise Cyrus for that. He wants us to praise him, who clearly indicated that. Um, and also, God points out here, Cyrus acted out of his own interest. And most historians agree that the reason Cyrus restored Israel wasn't because he was doing something noble, it's because he was taking the opposite tactic of the Babylonians who would basically spread the people out so they couldn't rise in rebellion. Cyrus was, was basically honing favor with all the local deities so they would be content to have his rule over them. Yeah, the very fact that God foretold it ahead of time should ward off any false notion that Cyrus deserves any sort of credit. Um, we can certainly thank God for judges or rulers who make godly decisions and who you know, bring about justice for God's people or, or who protect the church. But remember where the focus ought to lie. And when you think of it, most recently, think of the Vietnamese government, their leaders, asking us to go and build a seminary. Sure, yeah. And train people. Are they, are those leaders, were they God-fearing or did they do it because they realized the value of Christian citizens. Right, well, yeah. we know for a fact, one, they, they value, you're talking about the, the Vietnamese government allows us to you know, operate, build and operate that, that seminary training program. One, we know for a fact that <clears throat> they do acknowledge, okay, this is good for our, our citizenry to have Christians. It's not a bad thing to have you know, government honoring, law-abiding, <laughs> conscientious citizenship. So they see that benefit. But you're right, actually, the reason why we're able to get that door is because they need us to certify through some international organization that they are a friendly country. And one of the ways they can get that certification is by inviting us over and we can certify, yes, they're a friendly country for us. So yeah, they have self-interest. Does that mean you know that God doesn't get the credit? No, he still does. It's part of God's plan. It's part of his plan. And we have opportunity now to, to make use of that time God willed that the unconditional gospel through our church body should be revealed to the people. And it's marvelous. We can praise him for working that out. It's not just coincidence. I like going back to verse 7, the Lord reminds us, I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things. Yeah. We need a reminder of that often. I was going to point that out. Thanks for bringing that out. Look how many times God says, I'm going to do this, I do this, I create, I make. Yeah. And similar to that, he, he says, Cyrus will rebuild my city. Cyrus might have conquered all the surrounding nations and you know the lands around Israel, but it was still God's city. And God was working for his city. I will do this. Yep. He alone gets the praise. Other thoughts as we wrap up chapter uh, 45, verses 8 to 14. I'm going to make a quick mark here to make sure I fi fix that up. 
reference there. Then we'll go on to page 29, chapter 45, starting at verse 15. So we've got to read starting at verse 15 here. Uh, before we jump into it, just consider when Adam and Eve hid from God, they didn't really know what they were doing. They only knew they were afraid to see God because of the shame of sin. They knew they had rebelled. Uh, they knew that God was going to punish. He had promised punishment. Describe how all other people in Scripture respond when they either see a holy angel or a vision of the one true God. So how do people respond besides, it started with Adam and Eve, but how does everybody else respond when it's either an angel or, or an apparition of God revealing his presence or a vision of himself? Like fear. Fear, yeah. fear, terrified, oh, face yeah. down to the ground, uh, marveling that they somehow survived even though they were in God's presence. Yeah. And that's consistent, not just in the Old Testament. You know, you see the reaction, right? The angels have to say to Zechariah, to Mary, don't be afraid. The, the woman at the tomb, don't be afraid. Yeah. How would you respond if the Lord suddenly made his glory fully known to you right now? I would have my face to the ground. And I would be in fear. I don't think we'd be casually sipping our coffee. We would be somehow, in some way, in a position of, am I, am I okay? Because we need the gospel. We, we, are, we are by nature like Adam and Eve. The only thing we recognize from God is fear until he reveals his graciousness. Uh, think about Isaiah in the start of his uh, ministry, really, when he had that vision of heaven. Remember what he did? He said, woe is me, when he saw that vision of the throne room of God, because the angels sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He says, woe is me, I, I'm an unclean man, with, live among an unclean people with unclean lips. And God had to cleanse him first and remind him of the gospel. And Moses was even afraid to look at the burning bush and to look at God. Or think about the disciples at Transfiguration Sunday, right? Or John at the start of Revelation when he sees that vision of Jesus. Even then, even after knowing He's paid for sin and covered everything still. Just the, the seeing God while we live in this flesh is a, should be and is a terrifying thing. Well, verse 15 says, Truly, you are a God who has been hiding himself, the God and Savior of Israel. God hides himself from all sinners. It's not so much as Adam and Eve were hiding from God. He's actually withdrawn his presence from everyone, they could not stand in his holy presence. So why did God continue to hide himself even from his covenant people, Israel? For there, I want us to turn to Deuteronomy 31, 16 to 18. It says, you are a God who hides himself. Deuteronomy 31, 16 to 18 Anybody want to read that for the group? I will. Okay, Judy. Then the Lord appeared at the tent in the pillar of the cloud, and the cloud stood over the entrance to the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, You are going to rest with your fathers. 
and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. On that day, I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them, and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and difficulties will come upon them, and on that day they will ask, Have not these disasters come upon us, because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face on that day because of all their wickedness and turn to other gods. Thanks. So, this is God telling Moses 700 years before Isaiah's time what would be happening leading up to really every century from then until Isaiah's time. So why did God even continue to hide himself from his special covenant people? Because they had turned their backs on him and gone off after other gods. Yeah. And so when he talks about them being destroyed, they should be feeling that God has forsaken them because they forsook him. Well, for 40 years, he's been saying, follow my decrees and I will be with you. Right. And this is what's going to happen if you don't. In grace, he revealed himself to Israel. He wasn't very hidden when Moses saw him face to face and they made the covenant. He wasn't very hidden when he spoke from Sinai and they, they said, we will keep his covenant. And he wasn't very hidden when they had the pillar of fire to guide them by night and the, the cloud by day. He made his presence known. But after that, as they repeatedly rejected him, there were only a few times where that presence was renewed. You know, the, the founding of the temple in Solomon's time, um, the fire that Elijah called down from heaven. There, there were times that God made known he is Lord and with his people, but for the most part, completely hidden from them, to the point where they even say, is our God with us or not? They weren't with him. Parting of the Red Sea. So verse 15 here, truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. Even though we cannot directly see the Lord, we do have the ability to know him. Uh, let's discuss the different things he hides himself behind. So Israel saw him through many different ways he appeared to them. What does God hide behind today? The sacraments? Sure. Uh, the world only sees you know, ordinary water, but we know that with the water and the word is the spirit Washing and rebirth and renewal by the Spirit. And the Spirit dwells within his people who have been baptized, have been clothed in Christ. So that's something God hides behind. He's there. So the, the sacrament of baptism. And Holy Communion then too. Right. So once again, we see bread and we see wine. But there he tells us, this is my body and blood given for you. Um, in unbelief, you can reject that and say, no, I, I, don't, I don't really believe that or see it. But he promises, this is my body, my blood for you, for forgiveness, a new covenant. He's hidden in the sacraments, but he comes to us with his gospel. Other ways God is found Things he hides himself behind. His word, the word that you teach every Sunday morning and right now. Right, yeah, the word of God. 
he's found in his word. He, he hides, so to speak, hides in this book. It's not really hidden, but it's a mask that he, he puts that he doesn't show his full glory, but he gives his glory through his word. Yeah. He hides behind imperfect people like pastors and teachers who bring his word to other people. Yeah, his messengers that he sends. He says, I'm sending you. Just as the Father sent me, he told his disciples, I'm sending you. And if we have his messengers with his word, there behind that is God. It's hidden. The world despises the fact that God would send lowly messengers or use us as his ambassadors. But we are his witnesses. Yeah. So good. That's, that's what I had so far. He's revealed by his word. He's revealed through the gospel and the sacraments. He's revealed as he sends those who represent him, the universal priesthood of believers, also called workers. Um, God's wisdom and attributes Paul talks about are hidden in creation. So uh, we see he's wise and powerful, but only as we look at his created world. That's a limited revelation, but... As he hides, he's saying through the glory of the heavens and the vastness of his creation and wisdom of it all, there is a powerful and wise God who made all things. So he doesn't fully show himself except through his revealed means of grace. Israel would have to take him at his word. And when Isaiah gave these prophecies, God was hidden. Isaiah wasn't, you know, showing the, the vision of heaven that he had to everybody. He just gave it through the word and continue to give the word that the people might know the Lord and his promises. Now look at, jump ahead to verse 19. He says, I have not spoken in secret. So even though God hides himself, does he hide his word? His word is open. It's not like some secret cult or some hidden messenger meaning that you get some special knowledge. It's openly spoken to the world. He sends us, sends his messengers to the whole world so even though God hides himself, he reveals himself in his word and wants the whole world to hear that word and openly proclaims his word. Um, in the past, uh, also he revealed himself and made himself known by his son. Uh, that's what the writer to the Hebrew says, that God spoke to us through the prophets at various times in many ways, but now he's spoken through his son. So what is the ultimate revelation of God? The word incarnate. So we can talk about how today we have that in the word and sacraments. But he revealed himself the most fully through his son when he took on human flesh. Where Jesus could say, don't you know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Not that he is the Father, but he is the exact representation. Not, a, not in the likeness of God. He is God in the flesh. The Son of God. So you are a God who hides himself. But look at the description there in verse 15. The God and Savior of Israel. To save his people, he couldn't remain hidden, but stepped into history. Um, verse 16 talks about the idols will be put to shame. And they'll go off into disgrace. That's to contrast with the ones who don't hide themselves. The idols put themselves out there, but they prove themselves to be nothing. And their word is empty. Verse 17 but Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgrace to ages everlasting. That's a new thought. What does that verse say about the duration of heaven and the rest for God's people? 
That's a comfort, isn't it? It's not you get a second chance to prove yourself. It is, here's what's promised when you enter God's kingdom. His kingdom will never end, and it's an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame. You don't have to worry, like, oh, when I get to heaven, will my sins be exposed, or will I mess up and embarrass myself? He'll never be put to shame. It's hard for us to picture that existence, but that's a tremendous comfort that the salvation God plans is everlasting. Never having our enemy tempt us once again, never being pulled away from our Lord. What are we at for time? I can't quite see the, there's, there's always like a, a glare the way that that clock works. 13 you said? Okay, so we can take more, right? How about we go to verse 19, uh, 18 and 19. For this is what the Lord says, he who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not created it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. So I want to especially focus on verse 19 there where he says, I have not spoken in secret from somewhere from a land of darkness. I've not said, seek me in vain. Can you use that verse to explain the following, these following axioms? The first one I have is, God hides himself, but he is still able to be found in this world. So how does verse 19 explain that? God hides himself, but he is still able to be found in the world. The majesty of his creation, one. Okay. And his word. Right, so we do have the what we call the natural knowledge of God. Also, we could talk about conscience, that there's a just God who hates wrong and punishes wrong. But yeah, he has spoken. It's not hidden. It's not like Israel was told, okay, Israel... Don't let this word get out that there's only one God, right? They were to be his witnesses to the whole world. How about the other axiom? God hides himself, but he wants his people to seek him. Is that God playing hide and seek with us? Call on him in a time of trouble. Okay, he wants us... He doesn't show us, you know, directly how he's there when we face troubles, but he wants us in troubles to turn to find him in his word and call on him in prayer, knowing his word promises he hears and acts. Yeah, right. No, seeking God, um, really to seek the Lord is to strive to know him and serve him through his word. When it says seek God. Do they go into church or us gathering now? Right, so how do we find God? How do we seek God? We gather together where the word is found. We gather around that word for worship, for growth. I want you to consider this. from This is from Second Chronicles 15. It says, The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, son of Obed. He went out to meet Asa and said this to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judea, Judah and Bethlehem. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, 
he is there to be found. If you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without the true God, without a priest to teach, and without the law. That's the Torah. Then, in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel. They sought him, and he was found by them. So according to what we read in Second Chronicles 15, what is meant by seeking the Lord? In that case, studying his word. It's found through his word. Everything falls apart in our lives. Then we turn to the Lord. It seems, because we know he's always there. We ask forgiveness, he forgives us. Yeah, everything falls apart. The Lord is still there for you to, to seek his promises. Yeah, verse verse that I read here, verse 4 of chapter 15 says, Then in their distress they turn to the Lord. <clears throat> kind of sounds like repentance, but also just trust. Finding refuge in the Lord, even in our distress. So seeking the Lord could include repentance, or it could include you know, making sure that you trust in him, take refuge in times of trouble. Yeah, seeking the Lord basically is finding him in his word and his promises. Bethany, you had a comment there? Oh, um, the end of that, what you read, did you say he sought the people and then he was found by them? They sought him. Oh, they sought him. And he was found by them. Okay. Yeah. And, and we've got to be clear, this is not unbelievers seeking the Lord and then finding him. This is believers, and by sought, it means really turn back or repent or take refuge. It doesn't mean like... The people of Israel had no idea where to turn. It says they didn't have a priest to teach the law. And then they turned to the Lord. Now, turning to the Lord could be turning in prayer, repentance, seeking his word, thanksgiving in the end, yeah. So they, he was found by them. It's not like, oh, there God is. No, what it really means is they found a relationship with him. They found his pardon, his peace, his blessing, through repentance, through faith, through his promises. It's such a comforting promise, though, that if we dig into Scripture, it's not that we might find God, or there's a possibility we can find him, but we will find him. Yeah, if you seek him, he is there to be found. That's, that's a promise for believers that, you know, if, if you look and d- truly look in faith, take these words in faith, you'll find the Lord in his word. That's the big stumbling block I find with, well, those people that come around once in a while. <laughs> the CEOs? The yeah. The Christmas and Easter onlys? No, no, it's uh, Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witness? Okay, that's a Everything different category, yeah. It has to make sense. It has to be tangible. It has to be reasonable. They're know, seeking the, the Lord. Faith, the faith is just out of the question. They're seeking the Lord as... What you're saying, you know, it has to be tangible, it has to be reasonable. They're seeking the Lord through the lens of human wisdom, mm-hmm. not through just letting his word speak. So, yeah, that would be an inappropriate way to approach seeking the Lord. I'm going to reason out what God must be like. You know, God says, no, don't question the Trinity. That's one of you know, those things that people would question. Don't question the way I reveal that I'm three in one. Don't question the way that my salvation is a free gift. Yep. So seeking the Lord takes humility, not a proud, like, I know where to find God. It's letting your, your human reason, letting your pride, letting everything be subject to the word, and letting him speak and listening 
that's why it says Israel was without the true God, without a priest to teach, without the law. So they needed to turn back to the word of God first before anything. So, I have not spoken in secret, God says. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. How were they to speak? How, how were Jacob's descendants to seek the Lord? Look at the second half of the verse. I speak the truth. They, they were to find the Lord, seek the Lord in his word. And that's what he's going to start doing next as he makes his case at the closing part of this chapter. Um, we should probably finish the next question. That way we can finish off this page. That'd be a good breaking point. So verse 22 to 25. Um, we haven't read 20, so actually we've got to read all the way to the end of the chapter here. Starting at 45, verse 20. Gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will make their boast in him. A lot, lot of stuff in there. I'm hoping you heard some echoes from other parts of Scripture. Yeah. Every knee will bow. Yeah, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah. So, And notice when he, when he says there is no God, a righteous God and Savior, there's none but me. What's the logical conclusion? Turn to me and be saved all you ends of the earth. If he is the only true God... He also desires to let the whole world know and turn to him, not just Israel. So how are all these things fulfilled? Through Jesus yeah, how do we turn to God? Through Jesus Christ. How do we find ourselves saved as we turn to him? Through Jesus Christ. How do we reach the ends of the earth? Through Jesus Christ. How do we find that the word that won't be revoked, that every knee will bow and everyone will confess, some to their shame, others to his praise? Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of all this. Yeah, all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will make their boast in him. So how will that be fulfilled? Through Christ alone, the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. Yeah, all nations are invited to salvation in Jesus. There's no other name. Jesus is the only God. Before Jesus, we will all bow, and he alone is our righteousness and strength. Okay. So that's a good breaking point. When we meet again, we'll review the section we just looked at, so that'll fit nicely. We'll review the last part of Isaiah 45 when we meet again. And then we'll, we're kind of starting a new topic when we get to 46. 
God's going to take three chapters, chapter 46, 47, and 48, to rebuke those who rebelled against him, those who rejected him, and those who turned and never acknowledged him. Why don't we close with a prayer regarding what we looked at in the Word. Lord God, we thank you that you have revealed to us your saving word. Though you hide yourself and we we cannot see you now face to face, you have revealed yourself, who you are, through that word. You come to us in the word and reveal that you are a merciful God, one who is holy and just, but who has carried off our sins on the shoulders of your Son, our Savior, that you are the only God and Savior God. Help us, Lord, to recognize this as we call out to the ends of the earth that they might know that there is no other, so that when the day comes and all nations are gathered before you, every tongue will confess and praise you. Lord, as you reveal yourself to us in the word and sacrament, help us to find in baptism the blessing of the gift of the Holy Spirit and in the supper, the gift of your Son. And as we receive you in the sacrament and hear your word, build us up and strengthen us with all of your people. We pray this be done in Jesus' name. Amen.